So yeah, I could just do a quick intro. Um, what's up, guys? How's everyone doing? Thanks for being here. Uh, Untapped and I were doing a little series called Conversations with Untapped Growth. And basically, whenever we find uh, something that we want to talk about, something that's relevant to current events and what's going on in the world, uh, we um, get together and we speak about it. it. Makes everyone smarter. It helps us think through things a little bit better. And so that's what we hope to accomplish here. And yeah, let's get right into it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I, I think a good place to start off is there is this notion, uh, kind of this unspoken notion in the Bitcoin world, which is I can just fly to Latin America and everything's going to be okay. And I want to preface it with this. If, if you are from Canada, if you are from Europe, if you're from you know, a country like that, I can definitely understand that. And, and where I'm at right now, like what I'm saying is more geared towards people who are in the United States specifically. So I can understand why Mexico would be appealing for somebody in, in one of those countries. Um, but that being said, you know, just flying to Latin America is not, I, I don't think that's really the solution to this freedom issue that we have. And, um, you know, sure, there, there are, and don't get me wrong, there are many, many amazing things about Mexico, about Latin America in general, that you don't have in other countries. And I accept that. Um, fantastic place to live in many regards, and I'm not denying that. But, um, you, you know, the, 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 main, the main most important thing here is this. The United States has something so unique that no other country has. Maybe Switzerland a little bit, but nothing compared to the United States. And what is that? That is, and Joel's heard me talk, talk about this a lot, and, and I'll say it again, the unique thing that, you, that the United States has is a you know, communal reverence to the idea of freedom. No other country has that. And even if the people don't even know what real freedom is, even if you know, the people don't really know that taxation is theft, whatever, the fact that this country has more guns than people and they all at least have some you know, form of reverence to the ideal of freedom, that is a very important thing. And that's a very beautiful thing. And that is something I've grown to appreciate a lot after having lived outside of the country for, for almost two years now. So if you're from the United States, stay in the United States. Stay in the United States. Because, you know, for me, I grew up in Los Angeles. Like, I, I have no pride whatsoever of where I'm from. The, the, the you know, where I'm from, it, it's just, you have no gun rights. It's just the most fiat place ever, really. Los Angeles, New York, places like that, horrible. Don't live there. Move out immediately. Um, but, you know, if you go to a place that, you know, outside of the city, and we can talk about Oklahoma, and there's, you know, a reason why, you know, my interests are now with uh, Untapped Growth Project. But places like that, <clears throat> I think that's the best option. And, and I, I think probably a good point to end this all on uh, before we have kind of more of the discussion here, is this. They, 
and they being the globalists, the elites, the parasites, whatever you want to call them, these sick people who are basically running the show right now, they are on a mission and they're not going to stop at Mexico. <laughs> like <clears throat> they're, they're going to, they're going to try and, you know, get their hands on every part of the earth. And if you think that you can just go to Mexico or Costa Rica or some small Latin American country and somehow escape that, it's not the case. You're eventually going to have to post a flag somewhere. That's the reality of it. And it sucks and it's really inconvenient, but this whole digital nomad thing is not feasible. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my, my high level, you know, intro sort of thought. Uh, I don't know, Michael untapped, if you want to like pick this apart more, or, you know, what, what you want to do from here, but that's kind of my, my high level intro there. I want to talk presuppositions. So when we look at what's happening in the world today, let's first start with communism, right? Communism has been tried and it always fails. The reason communism fails is because it's an attempt to play a zero sum game in a non zero sum world, right? Because there's externalities. And if you can't control the externalities, it's always going to vent off to where freedom still exists. And it's going to end up kind of just being debased by freedom, right? But what's different now in this global communism roll-up is they're trying to create a system where there are no exit ramps. That way, communism actually works. Now, I don't think that's possible, right? Because there always are going to be exit ramps because there's always going to be some of us that assert our freedoms. And, like, that's, that's presupposition one. Like, freedom has to be asserted. You have to claim your rights. It's like God gives men rights, but men have to claim those rights and receive them in order to actually possess them. So this whole idea that we can go somewhere and be left alone, I mean, whether it's, like, join an Amish commune in Pennsylvania or, like, go to a foreign country down in Latin America or something, to me, it's a huge, huge misunderstanding of what's happening. Because they are not going to be able to stop until there is no exit ramp to communism. Otherwise, it doesn't work. They understand that now, which is why they're trying to take this weaponized tool of credit creation, which is what they try to do with communism, and then using incentives at scale to control the populace and capture free will and actually export that up into a centralized entity, right? They're trying to use the monetary system to do that through central bank digital currencies and digital IDs, right? But if there's any place that doesn't exist, communism is going to get the life sucked out of it by the place freedom is still thriving. So they have to take away freedom everywhere. There's no option. If they don't, they're going to lose. So I think this is part of the reason I'm going to get banned for this spaces. There's no way I'm going to be talking openly about this and not get in trouble. So there's, there, there's a reason the U.S. is getting attacked so hard right now in this hidden war. So... I think they knew that the U.S. was going to be a problem when it came to this global roll-up of tyranny, right? So we have a population with an ethos and spirit of freedom. It's a part of our creation story. We rebelled against the most powerful empire on Earth at the time as a weak little bunch of colonies. And we claimed our rights, right? And we have a government particularly designed for pretend protecting freedoms. So we've got the federalist system, a local power, where the probably the most powerful office, I would argue, in the U.S. is the local sheriff. You've got the county and state's rights. And you've got a firearm-equipped populace that outmatches most of the firearms around, like even militaries around most of the world, if you add up a bunch of the other countries. So the U.S. was always going to be a stick in the mud to tyranny. 
So they had to target us in this quiet war to dismantle our country. I mean, part of it we did to ourselves with like coming off the, uh, the gold standard. And so we had the debasement of our manufacturing base because of discovering oil or dollars as a natural resource. It's a lot like Dutch disease where Holland discovered oil and it just kind of made their populace with all the wealth being created lose their ability to produce. We have that. Then we have like the infiltration of our schools our colleges and just our culture in general, breaking down the family units and the strong culture of America. So that was part of the war and attack, which you can hear the old videos of who was that Michael that you posted him earlier. It was um, the Soviet guy. Oh, uh, Yuri Bezmenov. Yeah. So exactly, exactly what he predicted was done. Right. And then on top of that, we had our government subverted. I mean, we had this whole situation. I'll try to not get banned by saying it too directly, but I mean, it's essentially we have a shadow government now ever since the uh, elections kind of got stolen. um, So that happened. So now we have our own government working against the people. Now we have a hidden war going over the food supply. They're cutting off fertilizer inputs and animal feed inputs into the country, which is another base of our sovereignty. So now our manufacturing base is gone. Our food supply security is being crushed. We've got like the fertilizer place going up in flames. It's just all this is accelerating. So government working against us, no manufacturing, food supplies being attacked, broken culture that was decimated through long games of just cultural psyop wars. And then you add all that to the fact that we had a vaccination pushed into the West that if you go and read World Edge Group's reports he's putting out, people aren't awake to what's happening here. I mean, COVID essentially deactivates your immune system. They're having lots of cases now where they're showing that people are walking around nearly septic with no immune reaction whatsoever to it. And so it's it's actually their body's not responding. And so they're becoming susceptible to all sorts of just normal viruses and flus and things. But beyond that, people's bodies are also breeding superbugs because their immune systems aren't working. They're just like a fermenting bat for all the junk. So it's truly a bioweapon. We've been tricked into injecting our population. We injected it into our military. If you doubt me on how bad that is, read the work World Edge Group's doing. And look at the fact that China and Russia are not using mRNA vaccines. They understand what's going on with this big game being played to weaken the U.S. to get them out of the way. So if you look at the whistleblower case that just came out with the U.S. military, we have 863,000 reports on our troops of neurological conditions. We don't even know how many cases of myocarditis there are. They freaking deleted those numbers. Okay, this is an active duty force of 1.3 million. You need 70% of that 1.3 million to be combat effective. So we have a broken manufacturing base that's been like stripped away from for a couple decades. We have a broken culture and infiltrated education system. We have a hidden war going over our food security. We have a decimated military and we have a co-opted government. They did this knowing that if they didn't take down our nation, that the population of the U.S. was going to stop the global communism roll up because we were going to be a problem because we got a people that love freedom and are armed and can do something about it. So, Andrew, let's let me pause there. Do you got any thoughts about any of that first? Dude, I totally agree with everything you just said. I have chills right now hearing that. It's 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 you're totally right. I mean, they're the U.S. <clears throat> excuse me, has been systematically uh, destructed, I mean, you can say from 1913 and so on, pick whatever timeline you want. Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is, okay, well, why why would I move back there, right? (laughs) Like, why would I move back to a country where the military is 
pretty much uh, incapacitated and, you know, the meat supply is monopolized um, and all these, all these things happening. Um, without, without bashing on Mexico too much, th- there is really something to be said about having a, comp- a culture which almost values disobedience in a way. Like here in Mexico, it is a very compliant culture. Anywhere in Latin America, you can, I mean, you can talk to anybody that travels to Latin America. It's, it's an extremely compliant culture. I see kids with masks all the time. I see kids with fucking visors everywhere all the time. I mean, it's no one cares. People just do not care about their freedom. <laughs> they don't. I'm thoroughly convinced that Mexico, the only really the, the two primary reasons it's free is, you know, one, the cartel has uh interests in keeping businesses open they own a large large majority of the businesses here and they're not going to let the government shut it down and two the government also has an interest in keeping the borders open for tourism and and their own you know financial interests um i initially went to mexico thinking that uh you know the culture just naturally did not trust the government because of the cartel situation at the time, I thought that it would it would be free because of the culture. I was wrong. I, I mean, I'll just say it today. I was totally wrong, and that's that's actually the United States, uh, and that's why you know Joel, what you were saying, they've been trying to destroy the United States in many other ways. The food supply being the primary one, and the inject the lethal injections being the other, um, or just call it what it is. Hey, can I? Uh, we are so getting banned for this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so so um, a lot of what you said there was uh, was kind of new to me. Maybe I just never heard it phrased that way. It definitely felt like a, a black pill. Like I just swallowed a black pill here on the United States and what they've been doing. So I'm curious here to where the advantages lie. If if all of this is correct, um, where do where do the advantages lie with being here in the United States and just off the top of my head, what I could think of is that there are a lot of people now here waking up and realizing the game that has been played and are now starting to, you know, find each other and starting to develop networks and also communities. And that's what I see right now as the biggest advantage. I don't know if you want to tell me that's kind of the right idea or if you got something else to add there. Okay, so first point. A nation is not as government. A nation is its people. That's a very, very, very important point. A nation is persistent much more than what we think of as just the bureaucratic structures that appear to be the nation on the surface. But but when we pause that and circle back to presuppositions again. So if they were able to infiltrate and do what they've done to our nation where they weakened us across all of our institutional base and all of our sovereign bases of food, manufacturing, culture and education, military. What makes us think that we can just go to some small country and they're not going to just easily roll that country up and decimate it in the same way, right? Like, um, this is one of my critiques, and Andrew, you can either take the, uh, the devil's advocate position against me or say if you agree with me here. But this is one of my critiques of the free private cities initiatives is from what I can tell with what I've kind of looked into it. It's based upon thinking that 
we can go through spending money with nations that are a little bit weaker. So they're willing to kind of negotiate with us versus being involved in the, like the whole global agenda, negotiate buying ourselves a sovereign place of freedom where they'll just leave us alone. But there's no threat model. There's no understanding of the fact that what's going to defend that nation when what's going to make them keep their word with us, right? Like freedom only exists when it's defended and asserted. So when we look at what's been done to the U.S., I'm going to just, I'm going to sadly, I'm going to make you have to swallow another one here, Michael, where if they can do it here, they can do it anywhere. And until we admit that, we can't get to the work of solving this problem of actually defending freedom again. Does that make sense, Michael, first? Yeah, so it makes sense in the fact that, you know, if we're just constantly worrying about where to go to next and, you know, we're not actually planting our flag and building systems that are going to uh, maintain our freedom, then, you know, eventually over time, it just there's nothing really solid to defend against uh, the encroaching, you know, communism or Marxism. Is that what is that basically a good summary? Yeah, partly. Like, so, like, I keep talking about how money is optionality. So it's an option call on somebody else having solved the problem and being willing to trade with you later. Asserting freedom is kind of similar. Somebody has to do it. If you bounce around hoping that somebody else is creating freedom, you're still expecting it to be done for you. And with the level of opposition in our world today, there needs to be a remnant of people who are doing it. If we all just try to outsource that of saying, well, there's always going to be somewhere that's free based upon the assumption that places will be left alone. It's just cope. It's an excuse for not doing the work of what it takes to assert freedom. What do you think about all that, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, you're only as free as you're able to defend, right? That's what property rights boil down to. Um, you you can't ask. I, I guess you can ask for freedom, but freedom can't. <laughs> ultimately, freedom isn't something that, that you should be asking for. It's something you have to be asserting. I totally agree with you. And, um, I mean, I, again, i sorry to sound like a broken record, but... I, <laughs> That is that is U.S. culture is you know uh, a a reverence for freedom. So you know the the idea first of all with the free private cities thing, uh, I I think that that could be possible in certain areas. I really have no idea. I think I think we need to try different options here. Personally, I am speaking as somebody who grew up as a U.S. citizen who I'm just sick and tired of, you know, seeing my country get destroyed. That's basically <laughs> that's, you know, really where I'm at. I, you know, I, I used to subscribe to the idea of go where you're treated best, uh, live, you know, live in these nice jurisdictions uh, where there's a cheap cost of living, et cetera. That's all fine. Great. But the tyranny is going to go there as well. And, uh, yeah, like you were saying, I mean, freedom has to be asserted. And if there's any place where that will happen, it is the United States without question, without so, question. So even if you're balancing around trying to go where you're treated best, which I don't disagree with, because you have a culture that's quality, the quality people are going to go there and the quality people are going to do what they can to assert that. Right. But the problem is if we're hoping in a pipe dream of it being defensible when it isn't, if 
and our defense strategy is just that, well, there's no incentive. It'll just be left alone. That's a false presupposition because in order for global communism to work, they have to subjugate everywhere. There can be no vent off. Otherwise, that's not a zero sum game and they don't actually have control and they can't manipulate credit creation to keep the population enslaved. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, I just want to jump in there. <clears throat> so this is a little bit different from like the sovereign individual thesis, which kind of outlines that there will be areas in which freedom will be supported um, in different parts of the world and you'll have like jurisdictional arbitrage. But so number one, I find that so, kind of unrealistic well, for most people. But it well, it, I, it, I think there I think there will be, but they have to be asserted. That's that's what I'm just trying to hammer on here. We can't just hope and just go into somewhere where like there's no reason for them to not attack me. Right. It's, it's almost like an abusive spouse where like the woman's just like, well, if I stay mousy enough and sheepish enough, maybe he'll stop hitting me. Right. A lot of the worldview being brought to this is this idea that if we go somewhere small enough, we'll just be left alone because there's no incentive to screw with me. That's what's wrong. There will be zones and jurisdictional arbitrage and moving quickly between zones to kind of maintain our freedoms and being maneuverable and fast and like being smart to go to the places that are actually have the strongest cohesion of culture and unity and the better place to actually make your stands. But we have to see the real landscape in front of us and looking at this as if like we still have a mentality of slaves really is what I would say impregnated into us because this is what we've grown up with large state government structures in our world that just abuse us. And we had that same mentality of an abused woman who we just think that like, if we're just stay small enough, then maybe we'll be okay. And that's just wrong. We have to stand up and assert ourselves and do it in ways that are smart and cunning in kind of what you're thinking about as a sovereign individual, like the March regions and the gray zones and like play those games. But we need to, as the remnant bring a better worldview to this of not thinking that we can be passive and be okay, or that somebody else will do it for us. It is. Well, it, it, it's, it's kind of exactly like the situation in Canada, right? They've been passive for two years. They've been uh, acquiescing. They've been complying. They've been, you know, basically just following the government's guidelines uh, with the promise that eventually freedom would return. And someone had to step up and say, Hey, uh, yeah, we've had enough and we're going to assert our freedom now. And this is this is the stand we're going to take. So I see, yeah, tell me if I'm right, uh, I see that as being very similar to what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to get rid of the mentality of we can be small enough and be okay. Do you have any thoughts there, Andrew? Yeah, um, I, I just think... <laughs> You mentioned Costa Rica a while back, Joel. The idea that Costa Rica can't be bought out, <clears throat> you know, by some large economic power or something like that, and they're they're just going to keep their area free. I, I just maybe I'm too pessimistic, but I really think these people. I mean, I seriously think that the world is ran by very sick people. <laughs> I don't even think that's a controversial thing at all to say right now. And they're not going to stop. They're not just going to be like, all right, I'm going to let Costa Rica do their thing. That's fine. No, no, absolutely not. And uh, if you're not, and here's the thing, if you're in the United States and you don't have a good network of other like-minded people who have the same values that you have with freedom, you're also going to be screwed. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's 
a huge reason why I am going to be a part of, you know, Untapped Growth Project because I want to be around people who are on the same on the same page, ideologically speaking. And on that note, you know, I was thinking in Mexico, like, why am I not, why am I not like feeling like this is the best decision for me? And I thought about the lot, I prayed about that a lot. And, um, you know, I thought about when I was in the military, actually, that's something that pops in my mind. And when I was in the military, when I wasn't really questioning central banks or politicians or anything like that, when I was just living my life, I was a pretty happy guy. And uh, I realized I was a happy guy because I had a bunch of other men around me who, you know, we all shared a common mission. We all had common struggles, uh, joys, all that stuff, right? And that's what men need. That's what men naturally desire, right? And unfortunately, the state comes in and, and takes that virtuous desire of community and, you know, desire that, that men have to pr protect others. And it perverts that and throws uniforms on them and sends them to foreign countries and all that. Um, but I think that's something that has been systematically destroyed uh, a lot in many countries. Um, and that's, that's something I think is very important now, you know, to have men around you who care about freedom uh, on a very personal level. And, you know, I, and I've been involved in, in uh, a lot of community building in Mexico for the last two years. I've seen tons of communities, met tons of people who are involved in building these communities, and none of them are thinking adversarially. Is that even a word? <laughs> They're not thinking, thinking in adversarial terms. Um, so, I mean, I, I just, I would like to, to end this on a compliment to you, uh, Joel, you're like 10 steps ahead of basically any other community that I've, I've been in contact with, which is why I'm, you know, moving over there. So I want to kind of circle back to this a little bit about people. So what is the rate limiting factor of the global communist roll up or any regime trying to take advantage of people, right? It's, it's literally how much can they manufacture consent of the populace for their tyranny where the populace is willing to grant them permission through their implicit passivity that they have the right to do the oppression they're doing to their people, right? So, like Andrew, you're talking about Mexico. I, I think it's important for us to remember here because we've got the vax mandates being rolled back in a lot of places around the world right now. But this whole thing's never been about the vax mandates. It was about digital IDs. We need to get enough of the population, well, they needed to get enough of the population tricked into this fear spell that they could justify this rollout of digital IDs into central bank digital currencies and social credit scores to grant them fine-tuned control of this communist system where they could use credit creation at a global weapon as a, at a global level as a weapon, right? So these places where they seem free, like um, like Sweden, and I worry too, like Mexico, that's a good point about the cartels, and we could probably talk about that for hours, figuring out what's really going on there. Some of these places, they don't have to be cranking on the vaccine mandates. Sweden already has a culture where digital IDs are pretty much normalized. They don't have to have a bunch of a fear spell. Mexico, I mean, they're already pretty submissive to authority and compliant. They don't really need a lot of a fear spell in order for them to be bumped into a system where they're going to have other things instituted on top of them, right? 
we can't forget what the end game here is and kind of celebrate false pirate victories and get distracted from what they're really up to. So when push comes to shove, your core of support, wherever we're choosing to think is going to be the place where we have the best chance at having freedoms, is going to be built around how adversarial is the populace and how difficult is it to push them to get manufactured consent or them to go passive where they give you the rights. I don't know how many of you guys have been around kind of deep America. Sorry if it's loud. I'm in my truck and it's storming. Well, I just I can I can add something here, um, just a perspective on Central Central and South America. I got family in both places, and yeah, so they're they're very collectivist in nature. Um, they are very submissive and they're very compliant with authority. And my brother just visited Colombia, and what he told me is that basically the government has blocked through the internet, like through a firewall, right? Because again. Um, it's a lot of government control over there. It's it's very similar to, um, you know, to the to China and their firewall. It's not like here in the United States where we can get access pretty much to any information we want. But anyways, there's no alternative to the you know WEF narrative over there. They get none of it, and you know, so everyone just complies and submits to it. And so I thought that was a really good point that you brought up, Joel, where it's it's more so like. They need to get everyone on the same page, and some places need more of the fear spell than others. And um, apparently, in the United States, to overcome like our foundation in uh, of freedom, they had to they really had to crank up that that fear level. So I definitely I definitely see that the case. Wherever the light is, is where you have to oppress it with the most darkness. When you get in the ferocity of attack, it means it's the place that's got the most chance of having a resistance. Um, Andrew. Do you agree with Michael on his assessment of South America, Latin America there? Yeah, I do. I mean, <clears throat> okay. Well, I'll, I'll give some perspective. I'll, I'll push back a little bit. A little bit. Uh, I've been to a place called Charan, C-H-E-R-A-N, uh, which is more or less central Mexico. Charan is a small town of 36,000 people. They kicked out uh, 10 years ago. They kicked out the cartel. They kicked out the police, they kicked out the National Guard, and they killed their mayor. <laughs> okay? So they've been living mm, pretty much the closest thing to an anarchist society as possible. And it was a great place, right? It was very safe, very beautiful place. Kids running around having fun. Nobody gave a fuck about COVID at all. It's just a great time. Um, and, uh, and that's Mexico. You know, imagine something like that happening in the United States. Uh, I, I, I think that's, <laughs> you know, so the federal power in, in Mexico is not as severe as the federal power in the United States. That is something that has to be acknowledged. And that was a big driver in me being interested in Mexico initially. That's something that, you know, can't be ignored. It's not like Mexico's nuking other countries and... <laughs> You know, sending troops to the Middle East, and they're not doing that. So the federal power is not as big here, and there are pockets of freedom in Mexico, for sure. Um, I will say that, but that being said, the, the, the overwhelming amount of freedom in Mexico is a result of the cartel. It's a result of the cartel. Like it, hate it, that's fact. 
Um, and Joel, I mean, you have some interesting info on the cartel. Maybe we should get into, or, you know, I don't know how much we want to say on Twitter where everything's being written down. Yeah. I would like- <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll end it. I'll end it with this to kind of circle back and address your original question as far as compliance goes. Um, it is, it, it is in, it, it, it's just an extremely compliant culture. I mean, there's no other way to say it. I, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if I can even just, it's just go, <laughs> go to Mexico. You'll see how many people are wearing masks. It's, it's insane. Um, yeah, it's very frustrating. Okay. So we think about the sovereign individual and the emergence of these kind of new entities or places where sovereignty happens at a smaller scale as the time of the nation state ends. Right. And we always kind of think of these places as city states or whatever, but the cartels actually, I think are the first instance of that new identity of sovereigns. So I don't know how much you guys know about the cartels. I'm so just going to talk flat in this space and then I'm getting banned, but it's whatever. Um, (laughs) I'm at the end of my fundraise. Either people like hear the truth and they come join me or like, it's just it's just time um so the cartels a lot of these cartels the big ones that have power through like mexico up into the states they have a hundred thousand plus employees i mean they're bigger than like apple or google most of them have politicians in their pockets they got a lot of influence over the governments that operate and close to and around they've got hearts and minds lo- campaigns in the local communities they operate in whether that means like donations of money or like food to food banks or like running health clinics for like poor communities or whatever. So they have to support the local places and the jurisdictions where they have stuff happening. Okay. Most of these cartels also have either been trained by the CIA or by China. They have full blown, fully equipped special forces divisions and intelligence agencies. And they're active. They use these things. And so these guys aren't just drugs. They're entire networks of these kind of entities and businesses that are operating, doing all sorts of different things. They very strongly operate in jurisdictional arbitrage where they're doing kind of gray zone stuff, either for governments or for other corporations and businesses. And they have a very amorphous center where they're really hard to attack because nobody really knows where they are or who they are or how to attack it. Because It's like it's a headless entity that's just a bunch of little pieces that somehow kind of collaborate invisibly with the way they're structured. That what That's what I think is the emergent paradigm that like these new versions of sovereignty are going to emerge towards. So when you think about Mexico and its freedoms, that's a really big component that people are missing out on, that they're not realizing that the cartels have a different set of incentives than what we care about as the guys on the ground actually trying to build communities, right? And so it may look different. It may not have the oppression of the federal government, but you've still got a larger game of foot you have to deal with. And it still goes back down to what is the resistance level of the local population to being messed with. So I think the U.S. has gotten attacked so strongly because everybody in the world knows who's pushing the communism agenda that our creation myth and our heart as a people, our ethos, is one of freedom and rebellion. That we understand that freedoms must be asserted. And I, I don't know how many times or how recently you guys have been across a lot of America. I've been driving back and forth between Oklahoma and Virginia And I took a north route where I went through Indiana one time, and I took a south route where I went through, like, Mississippi and Alabama another. Most of America 
is very, very different than what we're getting presented on on the media. The, the level of things that they're talking about, I mean, you kind of saw this with the elections with Trump, you know, where he had the packed places and Biden had the place full of Jeeps with nobody there. We we are not getting a true story of what America feels like, even on social media. It's a subset that's very manipulated, manipulated more than we realize. America is angry and they don't know what to do with it. But the population has been pushed to the very brink of how much they can already get away with of this encroaching tyranny. So, I mean, this is where they often have to do PSYOP stuff like January 6th or like, I'm concerned this trucker rally in the bank run was all fabricated to like kind of attack Bitcoin and push the central bank digital currency stuff. Go ahead, Andrew. 100%. Yeah, I'm happy you said that. That I don't... Th- I I think, you know, probably 99% of people involved in the trucker thing are well-intentioned people. I'm not saying, you know... <laughs> 99.99. Yeah, but the reality is governments are extremely good at orchestrating big social movements if you want to look at one example you can look at the hippie movement that was all cia (laughs) all cia i mean it was originally the anti-war movement that was the whole thing and then they threw the cia basically got lsd and got all these drugs involved in this movement and uh, if you look at the really all the famous uh, rock bands at the time they all had connections to the cia so governments are very very they're a lot smarter than people think I mean, and I this coming from somebody who used to work for the government and held a gun on behalf of the government for many years of my life, like they are smarter than people think. They may seem stupid, but you know, certain agencies in the government uh, that are very smart. And also, uh, regarding Mexico, the CIA and the cartels also work with each other too. You mentioned China and the cartels, CIA and the cartels also work with each other as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, the trucker thing, I'm, I was sad to see that it's starting to happen in the United States. I just can't picture all these trucks, you know, all this not somehow negatively affecting supply chains. And of course, yeah, now you have Bitcoin getting vilified, uh, because people are using that for donations. I just, I made a meme, uh, last week and it said, uh, how they want you to protest. And it showed people like, you know, on the street, like raising their fists with their signs and protesting. And then the other one said how they don't want you to protest. And it had like Bitcoin, um, a 3D printer, uh, and then some cows. <laughs> That's really how they don't want you to protest. That's the real protest. If you think you're actually going to make a change by going on the street and yelling things, you got a big wake up call. Okay. So, they want you yeah. fighting over a system in which you have no control over and which they have complete control over. And that's like, po- that's the political apparatus, right? It's, it's two, wi- two wings of the same bird. Um, but uh, yeah, I was wondering here if we could talk about some of the advantages then that the United States does have. Yeah. Or, so go ahead. So if you look at the difference, Andrew, here, there's the protest where you're asking for permission and there's a protest where you're asserting freedom. So I keep going back. I told this in the Miami conference, the story of the Second Amendment rally in Virginia, where we are very much like a microcosm of the whole country here in Virginia, where we have a couple big city areas, so Richmond, Tidewater, and the northern Virginia around D.C., that are very liberal and they're high population density. And then the whole state besides that is very rural and very Republican. And they're largely were historically a lot of farming communities and a lot of firearms rights and kind of very strong, red-blooded kind of type American. Okay, so Governor Northam got elected. I'm not even convinced that even that was a legit election, even back before all this was more well-known. Nova is just a mess with the way their votes go. I mean, 
it was recorded there was more registered voters than living citizens in Northern Virginia. Um, anyways, so he gets elected. He instantly starts trying to consolidate against Virginia. So Virginia becomes less of a play with, for what's coming next in our country that we all now know and understand. So he starts pushing all these law changes that are restrictive against freedoms, especially firearms rights. So assault weapons bans, red flag laws, magazine capacity laws, on and on and on and on and on. And so when he started doing that, a bunch of people started protesting it and kind of being upset. And then it kind of escalated. And then the whole state actually like threatened to have a recall vote. And then when they threatened to have a recall vote, he actually changed the laws in the state that require a higher percentage of citizenship to order to have a recall. I mean, just street tyranny. Right. OK. And so eventually it just escalated where all of us citizens for each of the counties in Virginia went and protested at our county legislatures. And we came and stood outside the buildings. Oftentimes we were armed and we had rallies until the legislator at the county level listened to us. And usually it was the local sheriffs who were leading it. And they literally would come out and a couple key counties started this and said, if they push this law, I'm going to deputize the entire county. And this whole thing is going to be a second amendment sanctuary because we're all going to be police officers. Okay, and we had a couple counties and the sheriffs push that, and then the state or the county legislators went with it. And then it caught off like wildfire, where it was like 100 or 110 counties or something in Virginia, almost every county except for a few of the big ones around the city centers, had the county legislator pass that they were a Second Amendment sanctuary and it wasn't going to be enforced and or the sheriffs would deputize the whole population. Okay, when this happened, the governor Northam threatened the local sheriffs with revoking their um their like retirement and all that type of stuff and we're like cutting their pay trying to like take state funding away from all the like local law enforcement and the way that's all connected and so then it's like really at a head and so there was a rally scheduled on january 20th in richmond and we had like 70 or eighty thousand citizens show up to richmond and we showed up armed everybody was carrying most people were wearing full kit and Okay, you think like, okay, this is going to get psyoped, but it didn't. Everybody was there understanding the game that was being played. They showed up very peacefully. They, we, we had bags of trash. We cleaned up for like bags for trash. We cleaned up the city. Everybody tipped all the local businesses really well. It was like the best business day that ever had in recorded history for all the restaurants and things. That left the city looking cleaner. It was very clean and orderly and awesome. Um, but the reason it worked so well is because all the local sheriffs and all the counties were supporting us. So we had this whole system of local power being asserted in an orderly fashion based upon the way the federalist system in the U.S. is supposed to function, right? But the difference is we weren't asking permission. We were there essentially telling Governor Northam that if he didn't change what he was doing, the whole state was going to turn on him. And it was us being real Americans because that's the ethos of America. And that's what's different. It's not like we're sitting there like resign, resign or get rid of the mandates or this or that. Like we're there armed as a like a peaceful but an implicit threat that like a reminder is that the power of a government is vested in the consent of the governed and he didn't have it anymore. So they had to back off all those laws because they couldn't get away with it because the state didn't want it. The people didn't want it and the people were willing to assert it. That's the difference between those two types of protests. And that is the ethos that's dangerous to the global agenda that exists in the U.S. So that, first and foremost, is the biggest advantage there, Michael. Do, what are your thoughts there, Andrew? Yeah, I think that's 
I agree with that. I mean, but that that's a very, very, very slim uh, case, like 80,000 people all armed uh, and and with the the sheriffs on the same, you know, on the same team basically saying, yeah, we're going to completely disobey you if you pass this thing. So, yeah, I'm I'm surprised it did not get psyoped either. I mean, this stuff is what they do. I mean, especially if people all wear the same uniform, that's the worst thing you can do is, you know, have some sort of uniform at a protest because all the government agent has to do is throw on the same uniform and then do something bad and make everybody look bad. And then it gives the state more uh, more of an excuse to just come in and, and use force. But that's. Listen, man, that that is a very it's a beautiful story. I'm happy to hear that. I'm happy to hear that. It was actually successful. I mean, I, I've got family in Virginia. It's, you know, beautiful state with a lot of beautiful people. So I'm happy it worked out. Um, I just don't think stuff like that is, I mean, again, I, I think, I think the, the real protest is having resources, being around like-minded people, having strong community, um, you know, being resilient in that sense. Agreed. Because first and foremost, where we're at, it's it's a war of logistics of a permissioned economy that you're trying to exclude the freedom lovers from until we submit to kiss the ring of their communism. And then it's a war of the narrative of them trying to manufacture consent, right? So I'm not saying that that's the solution to our current predicament, but what I'm trying to illustrate is that in America, it's different. When we protest, we're not, as a people, always going to just sit around and raise a bunch of banners and say, hey, please make it better for us. We as a people have an ethos of freedom where we assert ourselves and we have a system that facilitates that mechanism of support due to the way the federalist system functions with the counties and the local sheriffs and then the states all the way up to the federal government. Right. So it's very, very hard for them to get this far as they've gotten in our country of just crushing us. And it's not over yet. The American people they pretty much already are awake when you think about the middle class and most of actually real America, kind of deep America versus away from the city centers and off the media and the news. But it's, we need communities that are opting out and winning this war of logistics and this war of belief and narrative. And so this is part of why I picked Oklahoma. Oklahoma is really interesting. It's got a culture that's about 30 years behind the rest of the country. It's kind of like 1990s America, which is awesome because that's kind of prime times. They completely, in a lot of ways, just ignore the media. Like a funny example, I went to the Bitcoin meetup, Oklahoma City. And so you guys have a sense of how many Bitcoiners are kind of familiar with me. Not a single Bitcoiner in there that wasn't already in the loop that I was coming and came there to meet me and was like looking forward to seeing me, knew who I was. And the same held true across Oklahoma as a population by and large, where they just aren't really watching the news. They're just out there living life, kind of salt of the earth type people. So by the fact that like it's a culture that just doesn't care about that, they just care about actually real life, real community, real business, they're kind of impervious to the big PSYOP machine, which is already winning the war of the narrative there, which is interesting. So like even this, all, every county in Oklahoma has been voting red recently, including the cities. And the mask density in Oklahoma on the county is just pretty much zero, like out in the rural areas. And in the cities, it's pretty damn low. It's just a place that's really, truly already kind of winning that war. And then you look at a few other things. I mean, Oklahoma's got a lot of oil and gas resources. There are a lot of the central nodes for the communications and internet lines and stuff our country run through it. 
a lot of the energy resources of like the electrical lines and then the trade routes and things run through it to a lot of the freedom-loving states in the central U.S. area. So it's already got a pretty good leg up on the war logistics, too. I mean, there's some big oil money there. The city's got some of that big oil money involved. But the culture rate, the culture is largely rural. It's largely salt to the earth and farming. And it's largely got kind of that more American, like, small business, do-it-yourself type mentality of, like, figure out how to actually make stuff and do things locally. So in America, we have a lot of the foundations of doing this right. And, I mean, that's just a part of our culture there as well, right? Like, go west, young man. It was like a culture of frontiersmen. This is part of what made our military so strong during the World Wars, where, like, we got bogged down in the hedgerows in Europe, and the tanks couldn't get through them because they looked so much worse than what they looked like on the um, intelligence reconnaissance they did from the airplanes. And they got on the ground, and all the commanding officers like, oh, shit, like, this is, we're fucked. Like, we can't get through these. This isn't what we thought they were. Now we're just sitting ducks and going to get decimated. But it didn't turn out that way because the American spirit with the military, they were very regimented in training. But when they're in the field, they showed a lot of initiative, which is what they were trained for. And they were an army of farm boys and kind of people who had dad who like dads and grandpas who were frontiersmen. And they were very ingenuitive. And they actually each unit fabricated up some sort of a solution, whether it was like weld something to the front of the tank or whatever. And they were able to get unbogged and get back to moving again. And as the units bumped into each other, they'd see the designs the other units came up with. They'd collaborate and make them better. So that's a spirit of what America's like. And as much as our education system's been corrupted, and as much as like there's this crazy Marxist stuff that's gotten inside of our culture, this is blown up in the media way more than is actual true about real America. Deep America still has a lot of that culture. It still has a young generation that cares about things like with land and hunting and like blue collar skills and trades. And yeah, it's kind of floundering a little bit. It's, it's, it's kind of under pressure. And then you got a lot of the tradesmen where you got the older guys, with the skills aging out and not a lot of young guys that take their place, but the seeds of it are still alive and the sparks are still there. So I like Oklahoma in particular because it's not really on the national stage. It's got a lot of stuff, right? The state in particular also has a lot of laws on the books as a people. They've declared that no law shall ever be made in Oklahoma that restricts such and such. It's also a place where it's got real American values, the way the laws are intended to be written. So I don't know how many of you guys know this, but the way the Constitution, the laws were supposed to be in America is that unless it was explicitly forbidden, it was allowed. Versus today, we tend to look at it the opposite, where unless it's explicitly permitted, it's forbidden, right? So, like, you think about doing projects and things in Oklahoma. It's been so funny. So I'm working on the Citadel and the ranch, and we keep calling, like, the county people about zoning or this, that, the other. We get all these funny looks where they're like, why are you calling us? Like, is it on your land or is it on your neighbor? Don't build on your neighbor's land. Like, well, yeah, no, we're on our land. Like, okay, then fine. Do whatever the hell you want. It's it's this culture, and I've talked to a few people who have chosen Oklahoma that are some fairly well-known people on um, understanding what happens during these kind of phases of civilization. And they chose Oklahoma for the same reason I did, which boils down to it's a culture that just ignores the laws and asserts rights and freedoms. Hey, Joel, got a quick question here regarding all of that. So it sounds great, but so the question that pops into my mind is what's the difference between that and like some Latin American country? Like what makes you think that you could just be in Oklahoma and do what you want to do and have the federal government or whoever it is leave you alone? Is it that you have a strong local um, population that's rooted in the ideas of liberty and freedom? Exactly. 
Because if they try to do it, they have to deal with the upheaval of the population. Governments don't have infinite resources when it comes to their ability to exert power. Now, granted, they got the money printer, which is infinite wealth, which they can use to craft incentives, but they can only move so fast. Their rate limiting factor is how much do the people themselves let them get away with. So the argument that Andrew and I are making here now is that in these other countries with a more passive and sheepish population, there really is no rate limiting factor versus somewhere that's true America with this ethos we're describing. You can't push them very fast or hard. And if you want to build a place of sovereignty where you're thinking about like opting out with like logistics and then like building places of narrative freedom and then shepherding the people with these parallel economies through hyper Bitcoinization, where it's breaking the power of the money printer, which is the incentives that enable all this at scale, then we need to be places where it's not just us hoping we don't get intact because there's not an incentive to, because the more you build a place where that's your threat model, the stronger you become, the, the worse your threat model gets <laughs> because there's just more and more incentive to attack you. And that's what you were banking on. But if you're in a place like real America, the stronger you get, the harder you get to attack because more and more that resistant populace starts to carry more and more of a fuck you attitude of like, we got what we need here. You just can't screw with us anymore. Any thoughts there, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, you know, talking about the difference between uh, the two cultures there, gun rights are non-existent in Mexico, basically. I mean, yeah, you want to have a twenty-two? <laughs> shoot, shoot your little twenty-two caliber gun. Sure, you can have that after you get a permit, you know, that's and, and then buy it uh, and register it with the government and all that. But uh, I firmly believe that is a huge factor in... I mean, I don't just believe it's, 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 uh, we know, I mean, gun rights are a huge deterrent for governments to, you know, they deter governments from messing with their citizens more. And, uh, yeah, people in Mexico just do not have, have gun rights as well. And unfortunately we've, we've seen that being stripped away in the United States, you know, a big reason I, I, I left the United States with so much anger toward, I, mean, I didn't realize it at the time, but really all that anger was just toward the federal government because, uh, you know, th there's clearly been uh, an attempt to strip away the Second Amendment in the United States, like California, where I'm from, for example. So this this is actually a really sad thing. So California, um, you have Los Angeles, which is super liberal, and then you have San Francisco, like that Bay Area, super liberal. And then you have the rest of the state, which is just farmer, good type, you know, gun bearing, just nice Americans. And they're dealing with the whole politics of Los Angeles and, and San Francisco. And uh, they were just making so many gun laws. Uh, and, uh, you know, one law, they, they do it one law, to, one law at a time, just incrementally. And then before you know it, five, 10 years later, you just have no gun rights anymore. So we're definitely seeing that uh, happen in the United States. Oklahoma, though, is, uh, you know, I, I, I've looked in, into the gun laws there. Oklahoma is a very free state as far as uh, gun rights, you know. So, I mean, again, as if, if you're in the United States and uh, you're, you're thinking that the U.S. as a whole is just doomed and, and freedom is being lost and you're going to go to Latin America and be, be treated better, et cetera, just go to a different state in the United States, you know? So I would say this conversation, what we're trying to explain is that freedom must be asserted. Don't trust in just being left alone. 
I mean, don't think like a mousy abused spouse where like if I'm just small enough, then they won't hit me anymore. Because that's kind of what we're dealing with was this communist roll up. And go around people who are going to make tyranny expensive in that area by causing a disruption and making a mess if they try to push it too far. And then build capacity for opting out. Build parallel vertically integrated supply chains. Build all these things of circular economies that we know about so that we can win the different wars, like the war of the narrative, the war of logistics, the war of like eventually with the money and Bitcoin, right? Because we need to keep trade going and the economy free. That way Bitcoin can keep winning by protecting the people who are doing it and using it. So, Andrew, do you want to say anything else now or just kind of open up the questions? I kind of like to get Patrick's take before we do anything else. Hey, real quick, uh, <clears throat> untap. I got a question regarding the probability of, of all of this happening. Um, where do you see the probability line? Like, is, and how far do you see this going? I think they're going to keep pushing on global communism until they have it everywhere and they're not going to stop, just period. One of my big concerns is that the WEF is trying – so, like, they're trying to roll everything into, like, vaccine imperialism as incentive for the SDR system and then use the credit creation of the SDR system to manipulate incentives to create a centralized government globally at scale. But I think they're neglecting to face the fact that nations are smarter than that. I mean, especially, like, if you look at the situation right now with, like, Russia and China. They, like the WF, they're a bunch of bureaucratic paper pushers who think that this credit creation incentive thing is going to be enough. But China and Russia are smart enough that they don't, they don't just think in paper money. They think in power. And I think with the dynamic here of the whole world being weakened, especially the U.S., where we have the mRNA vaccines and the military base and everything else we just talked about, that China and Russia, especially China, they're going to start pushing more and more. And I think they're going to step out of line with the WEF agenda and try to take advantage of the weakness of the world. So how bad can this get and how quick will it go there? Or how far is it going to go? Man, like they're going to push communism until they get it. Nowhere's going to get to be exempted from it. I think they're going to fail. And I think when they do, some of these nations that are playing the long game of power are going to try to take advantage of it and become global superpowers that can dominate everybody else. Um, and we just need to start building sovereign capacities back in the united states again starting with us as our communities where we're building like resilient local systems for supply chains and small business networks and food production everything we need so we can opt out that way we build that localized resilience that america is known for so if anything does go wrong we have the adaptability and resilience to weather it all right so do you guys want to open this up get some other people's thoughts here let's I'd do it. Like Patrick the mic first I mean I'd love to hear his thoughts on all this yeah let's hear that oh hi there um, yeah in general the the key point that sticks out to me is why America because I, I get presented that quite often myself it's like why am I here I can pick anywhere else and it's quite um, quite costly for me to be here um, I've always found that Americans are kind of like sleeper agents of freedom where um it just all of us that's always been my number one factor it's like you can just like accidentally or intentionally activate yeah i'm fighting for freedom all of a sudden and it's the only group of people i know who do that um and that alone keeps me here keeps me focused on america um 
and just that ethos behind like the founding fathers to, to begin with that can that you can just inspire in Americans and no one else it's that I find unbelievably valuable that plus we have a system that's built to harness that with local sheriffs and federalism with counties and states I mean they can erode the social contract like they're trying to but eventually the people on the ground are going to wake up go ahead decentralize MD Man, Joel, spitting straight facts. Michael, thanks for having me, man. Uh, Andrew, exactly what you were saying, man. Just want to reiterate uh, 100% on the whole going to a different state. And Joel, what you were hitting on in terms of uh, what we see in America versus what we see in the media, man, it is a polar difference. And as far as like parallel economies, it is absolutely a possibility. Coming from someone from the deep southeast, you know, we already have those kind of things on a much smaller scale. But I, I, I already participate in those kind of things, you know even as far as to offering my own services as a doctor, you know, in term, in exchange for other services that help people to both have access to what medical information that aren't not super internet savvy, as well as me getting access to things like cultivation, whether it be uh, people teaching me how to better, getting better at, uh, you know, homesteading or things like that. So this is absolutely a possibility. It's just one of those things where we're getting more people on board. And I'm just really encouraged by the fact that we have so many people finally discussing these things and Andrew actually coming out with the fact of like people don't want you to protest with like 3d printing and Bitcoin and, and land. I mean, that is like, God, it was like the chef's kiss of a statement right there. So just want to say absolutely everything you're saying, but this is a possibility. I think a lot of people get really discouraged with these kind of things. However, it's like, just like I've been talking with Econo Alchemist about, you know, going completely privatized and he said, it's just one step at a time. And I think if people just realize we just take one step at a time, it's kind of thing we'll be there before we know it. So very encouraged guys. Awesome. Yeah. I appreciate that a lot. Thank you. Um, one thing that comes to mind is because basically what you're describing is agorism, right? Like local, uh, peer to peer economy. Like I, I have stuff, you have stuff. We both need stuff. We need each other. We're going to trade. That's the way it should be. <laughs> and, um, unfortunately the United States has been corporatized a lot. And uh, they've made it very difficult for small businesses to do things like that. Um, but if you look at collapsing economies, that's always the case of what happens. So even in Mexico, that's it's actually one thing I, I have seen about Mexico that I do uh, that I do appreciate about Mexico that I, I know is happening more and more in the United States and will continue to happen more is, uh, you know, try, just adoristic economies. You know, pe people producing their own things, trading with each other, uh, using cash, things like that. Another example is Soviet Russia. Uh, at the peak of, you know, communist Russia, I believe it was 70 or 80 percent of the, the economy was like basically black market because that's the only way people could survive, literally. Um, so we're going to see more of that. We're going to see more, uh, you know, just people trading directly with each other and helping each other out with resources. But yeah, the, the big thing is just to be around people who, who you're ideologically aligned with, uh, who have these same goals. So for sure. hundred yeah, I mean, percent. In these chaotic situations like this, you have to think globally, but act locally. So, I mean, the U S as a larger nation They've got a lot of advantages, too. I mean, we've got deep water ports on both the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. We've got oil and gas resources, just lots and lots in our nation already. 
we destroyed a lot of our soils, but they can be fixed and repaired. We've got the population with a heart and ethos of freedom. We're pretty rich in most natural resources that matter. So there's a lot of good strategic advantages to the country. But um, yeah, it, to me, it just is all going to boil down to the people thinking and acting locally and pulling together to build these parallel, resilient, vertically integrated systems where they can begin to opt out and assert their freedoms. And I think the U.S. has the best chance of that of anybody. Um, do you guys want to bring up someone else here for a question? Yeah, I'd like to bring up, if we can talk, I'm going to join the stage, um, Barbary, and um, I'd love to hear Sigma's thoughts as well. If you guys want to come up, throw it, a request up at Michael. All right. What's up, Barbary? Oh, what's going on on uh, on the road right now? Uh, where do I begin? Of course, Joel, we've met in real life one of your Alabama trips. Uh, there's a lot of great minds in here, and the question that keeps pressing is how do we take this this online aggregation, whether it's Twitter, Matrix, Telegram, elsewhere? What is the biggest hurdle in replicating this model offline to building those networks? And of course, you're trying it with your with the Citadel in Oklahoma, but what's the, what's the biggest hurdle to jump over and try to make this happen somewhere before 2024? The biggest hurdle was overcoming the passivity in the community. We just keep sitting back and thinking that the solution is going to be magic, that like we can compete against this once we Bitcoin runs up enough for us to all be rich, right? But the thing is that we've got now the credit creation done with the government currencies and money printer and now the global SDR. And on the other side, we got Bitcoin with the adoption curve. So we're being enabled by the way that the game theory of Bitcoin is creating this run up of value to actually directly have the ability to compete against credit creation. If we try to wait, nobody's going to actually assert freedoms and what's going to actually protect the people that are going to be using Bitcoin and actually protecting and defending Bitcoin as an actual sovereign tool and network versus just this government tyranny, just continuing to encroach the social contracts and enforcing these interface systems that just paper Bitcoin over the top. Right. So like whether you're thinking like wallets or travel rules or all this stuff. Right. So the first thing first, we just need to wake up and realize that like the time's now. And then the you got to start thinking in logistics and supply chains. You can't just think in money being like value itself. It's optionality on value, which you have to have people taking responsibility to create and build that value. So, I mean, that goes down to at the end of the day, the value creators are the people like making things and farmers, right? So we got to get into doing that. And then we have to really be focused on growing as men and women in our character. That way we can get past all the blind spots to have the discernment to know who we should be building trust with around us and focusing on density in like cohesion of culture by focusing on like integrity and like the uncompromising vision together. Right. That's really what the right factors are. And on that note, Joel, of course, Veritas is lurking in the spaces here. Uh, if anyone not familiar with Veritas, check out his timeline. And, and Joel, you talk about this theme of thinking adversarially, right? I'm a veteran. Andrew's a veteran. It's, it's beef bullets Bitcoin, as Andrew's meme 
perfectly encapsulated last week and that we need to move away from, oh, we can't play by their rules and their game. The trucker protest is a good example because they'll just ignore it and make up new rules. We have to think, well, how if we're going to war and how we define that, not necessarily kinetic, maybe it's cyber, maybe it's biological, food supply chain, so on. How do we how do we shift that mindset and 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 in that network and framework so that we're thinking how would this look in a in a war zone how would we have food and security and relationships and networks in a non-permissive environment we just come a nation and frontiersmen again where we have communities around us and the ability to make what we need right in house i mean we just got to get resilient that way you have optionality where if you can't do it because something goes wrong your brother sitting next to you can and not just outsourcing that globally to other people that don't have our best interest at heart anymore. Anybody else you want to bring up, Michael? Or anything else you want to say, Andrew, while Michael's probably trying to bring somebody up? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about uh, non-permissive environments, it's we're in a war right now. I mean, there there is no uh ambiguity here it's just a different war uh than we've seen before it's an information war um it's it's not uh, they're not they're not fighting this war with guns and bullets and everything like that obviously the state has its power because it has a monopoly on force and that's a huge factor but uh that's just one thing i would also add is you know we're in an information war first and foremost and they're going to try and break people down as much as possible. So, and with that, actually with that, I would say protect, protect your family as much as possible too. Right. Like that's, that's the original, that was supposed to be the, the original government is the family unit. And that has been systematically destroyed as well, particularly in the United States. So I'm optimistic on that front. I think people are waking up, um, especially with the cultural Marxism that's going through the school system. You know, James Lindsay is doing a really good job at waking people up, and it's it's going to be a matter of time um, before that really starts to permeate like the fruits of that. Because Marxists have ba- basically taken hold of the culture for the past sixty years, and now we're we're dealing with you know late stage postmodernism, and um, it's just one of those hurdles that we're going to have to get through, um, get over here in the United States, and. Um, I'm pretty optimistic, though, as to like the next generations coming down the line. It's just getting through this next decade. Yeah. So I got a question DM to me that I want to address. So why is this stuff better in the U.S. than elsewhere? Why can't we just assert freedoms elsewhere and try to like bring in a population that's got the same ethos or spirit? Right. The difference is that it's in the culture at large in the U.S. And you can't change people's worldviews. People's worldviews are their instinctual reaction to reality based on what they believe. And it's just going to be how they react. And the basic worldview of the larger position, like portion of the population of the U.S., especially in some of these key states, is that when things really shake out, they're going to fall on the side of the line that matters, where they're going to be resistant towards tyranny and supportive towards freedom. So, yeah, you could try to build a dense, tight-knit tribe somewhere else, but having that massive volume of the people that are closer to the worldview of freedom around you, it's a really, really big deal. Go ahead, Andrew. 
Yeah. So another response to that. Okay. Let's, I'm only using Mexico as an example, because that's what I can speak to the most because I've been here for almost two years. Um, I, I have had the same thought many, many times uh, as far as getting your own kind of tribe or culture or whatever you want to call it down here and uh, setting that up and having something that's structured and long-term the reality is that you can't do it. And uh, a big factor is, you know, if you are, <laughs> a lot of people don't know this. If you are politically involved in Mexico as a foreigner, they will deport they, They're going to de deport you. <laughs> Literally, they have a legal ability to deport your ass if you are politically involved in Mexico. So that's a big factor. The second point is your range of influence is severely diminished if you are not among your own culture by and at large, right? You're not going to be able to influence a lot of people around you if it's not your culture. I mean, that's something that I'm sorry, but it, it can't be, it must be acknowledged is you're an outsider. Um, so that's what I would have to say about that. Yeah, it's interesting because during times of chaos, Property rights are going to default to in-group, not out-group. And so if you're trying to build these things elsewhere, you're putting your position, yourself in a position where you're always out-group. And like we were saying, nations are more than just their bureaucratic structures. That culture of the population is a thing that in and of itself is really like a, a living being. And that's an important piece to recognize. I'm glad you brought that up, Andrew. Go ahead, Re Reality Bob. Hey, guys. Um, it's first time going on these spaces um it's cool really cool to listen to everyone share their uh points of view um i just want to say two things really quickly um it would be interesting to see what would happen if instead of canada it'd be the u.s truckers you know taking their um trucks and then exercising uh simultaneously their second amendment i think you know the actions taken by governments would be a lot different i think untapped growth touched on that and then the second thing was uh, Andrew mentioned how it's very difficult to create, you know, somewhat of a network uh, when you're in a different country. Um, and it kind of reminded me of like, you know, I, I drew my mind just drew the parallel of like shit coins trying to like come into the scene where like the, you know, there's a dominant network already. So it's just not not going to happen. You got any thoughts on that, Andrew or Michael? Or you're ready just to yeah, hand over I just. Yeah, one last thing to say. I mean, I want to reiterate because I know I've got some uh, Canadian friends listening to this and some, some European friends as well. I'll reiterate this. If you're from Canada, if you're from Europe, et cetera, and you cannot enter the United States because you are unvaccinated, which you can still – apparently there are still ways to enter. Uh, I don't have to get into that. Uh, but if you can't, then, yeah, I, I understand, like, go live in Mexico. I'm not, I'm not trying to just bash on Mexico and you know, it, it's, I enjoy Mexico for many reasons. Um, and I think, you know, if, if you want to just survive the next 10 years, you're going to be able to do it here. Um, but I mean, I, again, if, if you have the ability to enter the United States and be in the United States, then, then do that. So that's what I'd say. Because, yeah, you may be able to survive for a little while, but you're banking on just hoping somebody else stops the global communism roll-up. Versus if we're in the U.S., here's the place where we stand the best chance of stopping it together. Go ahead, Michael. 
No, uh, I was going to ask if anyone else had a question. Just put your hand up so I can get you up here. Um, or anyone that's on the speaker already. Yeah, I see John does. But yeah, what you said on tap to remind me of uh, Braveheart in that scene where he's telling them, you know, you got one chance to fight for freedom. And, you know, wouldn't you want to take it here as opposed to dying in your bed many, many years from now saying you could have stood up. And so just reminded me of that. I love that scene. Go ahead, John. Hey, what's up, you guys? Good to, good to hear you. Uh, really appreciate this perspective. Really, really enlightening and um, appreciate the input. Question that I'm that I'm kind of thinking through uh, is, you know, part, one of the major resources that we have as Bitcoiners right now is the social network that we're establishing and the in particular, the in-person network that that is taking place with the in-person meetups. So I wonder if you I just want to get your guys' thoughts on um, how you see the in-person meetups kind of playing a role going forward and in, in educating people, uh, getting because it's really like a, a great entry point into the Bitcoin community. And it's a great opportunity for meetup leaders to kind of educate people on these sorts of things and what's actually going on. Um, because even a lot of the Bitcoiners that are coming up, coming into the meetups, you know, they're not necessarily thinking adversarially. It's, it's a new, it's a new asset. It's a new investment and this kind of thing. So yeah, I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that. I think these little dense units of locuses of trust really matter. And we should be leveraging those as a community and start leaning forward into hyper-Bitcoinization where we take advantage of this anti-credit creation, which is Bitcoin run-up, and use it to start building these mesh networks together of logistical sovereignty of these communities. And just together define for our little group of people, wherever they are, what are the biggest things we need sovereignty over? First one's pretty much always going to be food, but then there's other things depending upon where you are that are most at risk. And then just start building, man, because those those trust relationships are the hardest part. and They're the foundation. And in our community, we got a good sized group of already awakened people that see the world. And we have a lot of these relationships and trust that have already been forged and leaning the right direction. Start using them to build, baby. Yeah. If you, were you going to say something, Michael? Or? Real, real quick. I just want to say, yeah, it, it, it acts as a giant filter. I mean, the people you got going to Bitcoin meetups, they, um, you know. There's a chance there that you're going to find people that align with, you know, your vision, your understanding of the world and value personal sovereignty. So, you know, you cast a wide net and see see what uh, what comes out. You know, you're, you have a better chance with Bitcoiners than I think most other people. Yeah, I think uh, to put a cap on it, you know, if you if you look at any other movement that can't be stopped, or actually, I mean, I talked about this point a lot, uh, but it's an important one. Let's look at the Vietnamese versus the American military or, you know, um, when the United States military went in war in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And basically what happened is the largest, uh, most powerful military on the planet could not destroy a bunch of farmers fighting on their homeland. And that is a very significant thing. And 
you know, and then let's also look at like Christianity, let's say, right? Like with Christianity, there's no person on earth where you can just like cut the head off that person and then the, the entire movement is done, right? Same thing with Bitcoin. Literally, it's, it's, it's Bitcoin is that movement. It is a bunch of people who are extremely passionate about, you know, a certain set of, of ideas, right? In our case, it's freedom, it's, uh, you know, permissionless money, et cetera, all these things. Um, so I think that's a really important thing. And uh, yeah, these mesh deals, these small pockets of local trust in the community is a very, very, uh, very, very significant thing, I think. Hey, Untapped, I'm going to go to Chase, and then I got a question for you regarding um, um, Citadels. But go ben ahead, Chase. Benjamin, Benjamin's been waiting for a while. He was here before John. We skipped him, and he clicked his mic off just a second ago. Let's let him go first. Go ahead, Benjamin. Yo, what's up, guys? Andrew, Joel, John. Good to hear from you, man. I haven't seen you in a little while. Um, yeah, stoked you're coming back to the U.S., Andrew. And I think what I heard in this conversation since I've been in here is really what it comes down to is the spirit of liberty and the true meaning of being an American. It doesn't really matter where you go in the whole world. It's never going to be like America. And, um, you know, I'm looking at some quotes. I'm actually working on my book right now and I just opened up, you know, the section about all this kinds of stuff. And, there's this quote from Thomas Jefferson where he said, the spirit of the times may alter, will alter. Our rulers will become corrupt. Our people careless from the conclusion of this war. He's talking about the Revolutionary War. We shall be going downhill and it will not be then be necessary to resort every moment to the people for support. They will be forgotten, therefore, and their rights disregarded. They will forget themselves, but in the sole faculty of making money and will never think of uniting to affect a due respect for their rights. The shackles, therefore, will be made heavier and heavier till our rights shall revive or expire in a convulsion. And then I'm looking at a quote from Thomas Paine where he says, can you read, can you read that last two sentences one more time? That was really good. <clears throat> Um, yeah, he said they will forget themselves, but in the sole faculty of making money and will never think of uniting to affect a due respect for their rights. The shackles, therefore, will be made heavier and heavier till our rights shall revive or expire in a convulsion. That is so freaking good. Okay, well, go ahead. Go ahead. I'd love to hear what you got next. Yeah. And then Thomas Paine, um, he has some good quotes here as well. He said, these are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he, he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict the more glorious the triumph what we obtain too cheap we esteem too lightly 
It is dearness only that gives everything its value. And so I just wanted to say that I'm stoked that Andrew's coming back to the U.S. um, Because that's the true spirit of liberty is why you're coming back here at the end of the day. And that's why I'm staying here. And that's why we're setting up in places like Oklahoma, Wyoming, Texas. Um, Orange County, fuckers. And Orange County. I'm in Orange County right now. But I'm from a place in the middle of nowhere. Most of the people around the country outside of cities, you know, that's where we're from. So, but I will say that, um, you know, like Bitcoin is basically like the codified 1776 spirit of liberty. And Bitcoiners are taking that original founding father revolutionary kind of spirit to the rest of the world. And uh, that's how I feel about it. It's a very American thing. And Bitcoiners are very American. But um, one last thing. There's a, a really good essay by uh, anarchist philosopher, uh, Voltaire de Clare. Um, she wrote Anarchism in American Traditions in 1909. And the way it starts out is it says, American traditions begotten of religious rebellion, small self-sustaining communities, isolated conditions, and hard pioneer life grew during the colonization period of 170 years from the settling of Jamestown to the outburst of the revolution. And then Patrick Henry in uh, 1765, about 10 years, yeah, 10 years before the Declaration of Independence, he basically, he gave a speech to the Virginia House of Burgesses, and he basically threatened the king of England Um, And he ended it with saying, um, if this be treason, make the most of it. But that was 10 years before the Declaration of Independence. So um, we have a lot of work ahead of us, and hopefully it doesn't get nasty. But uh, either way, we got to do what we got to do. So um, rant over. Thank God for Bitcoin. God bless y'all, Citadel, and uh, God bless America. Appreciate it, buddy. Glad yeah, you, glad awesome. you said all those. That was beautiful. Yeah, appreciate that, Love man. Love you, Ben. So, Andrew, those quotes make me think all the more why I'm glad you're coming to Oklahoma, man. Because thinking about like it not coming too easy, this lets it not be cherished enough. Good Lord, man. I've been fighting hard for a year, and I'm really happy to be adding another brother to the team, man. It's um, It's been a battle. Like That, that rings so, so true what he said about distracted by just making money where like I'm trying to make the stand of pulling these brothers together who build these center places of opting out and asserting freedoms. And like, I'm having a hard time where like the, the plebs are showing up strong, but trying to pull in anybody who is like a larger player in the community who understands the value of what it takes to be Americans and be true to that, be faithful to who we are as a people that is willing to come in and sow these seeds of faith with us. I need some more of those people. And it's been, it's been hard slogging without them. Hey, so if there's anybody in the obvious listening, I'd love if uh, you guys hit me up, but um, if we're going to keep fighting, no matter what the price is, we'll get there. Go ahead, Michael. 
Yeah. Uh, can you can you elaborate on that? Because uh, is, what's the disconnect there be, between, you know, I, I would say the more well-to-do well people and them connecting, you know, the ultimate vision and what's important? Yeah, I think it's a similar dynamic to what we're talking about here where like the middle class had their small businesses shut down and put really heavily under threat for a whole year. And they realized that you can't just solve your problems with like having savings in the bank. Cause it's like, you just can't outmaneuver shutdowns. You need a tribe, you need a local area that's willing to assert itself and you need a willingness to be disobedient at scale. Otherwise it just doesn't work. Right. And most of the really wealthy people, even the Bitcoin community, didn't experience that. The second it got bad, they picked up and moved to like Florida or something. And they'd just been down on the beach, just kind of chilling the whole time. And I think it's created a situation where only the middle class is truly awake to the real risk of what's coming. And that the wealthy kind of are asleep on their laurels a little bit, thinking that because they escaped it once, they'll better escape it again and just buy their way out, not realizing the magnitude of this global hidden war and conflict taking place. Because it takes time to build these communities of like sovereign manufacturing and food control and all this stuff. And by the time it really is too late, now it's like you're trying to spend money in your out group, trying to find people you trust. It's like time to build it's now. And you got to find the people who have the skills to build it with. And I worry that by the time it gets bad enough that the wealthy people actually start suffering from it, it's going to be too late to solve the problem. And those of us who are really pulling together teams on the ground to go after this and bootstrapping it with just us and the belief of the plebs coming together, we really could use some support. And the sports needs to be stronger to really allow us to move faster and larger to be able to build more, to take care of more people. And, um, it really just hasn't come through yet. I mean, I'm building in faith, hoping that it will and bootstrapping with all my entrepreneurial skill trying to get there. But um, we could definitely use more allies, man, because this isn't this isn't something where we should be thinking about this in nominal profit. I mean, it goes just to that Thomas Jefferson quote, Benjamin, which is reading. We need to be thinking in freedom and how this is actually an assertion of freedom and how really that's that costs money. It doesn't, it doesn't provide money when you're trying to assert freedom, but it's important because it provides the foundation and the landscape that the next generation can have to actually create value again versus them become slaves. Any thoughts there, Andrew? Yeah. I mean, I, <clears throat> I, I agree that there, there is a notion among the wealthy that they're just going to be able to buy their way out of any problem. And that is not the case because we're going into a world where wealth is going to be defined entirely differently than it currently is today. And even Bitcoin people like you, there, I, I know many Bitcoiners who think that they're just going to be totally fine and uh, they're just going to be able to travel wherever they want and they're just going to be able to just live on Bitcoin and they, they don't have to worry about any of this stuff happening. Just if they just have enough Bitcoin, they'll be fine. It's not the case. Um, the idea of wealth is not only transitioning from dollars or euros or pesos or any other uh, fiat currency to Bitcoin. That's the that's a transition. But the other transition is, you know, the idea of wealth is going to be resources and network. Really, those two things, resources and network and Bitcoin, of course, you know, that's the monetary transition. 
Um, and you, I think you put out, I think it was from you untapped. You put out a really good tweet. Pretty much you can't buy trust. And that's entirely true. You cannot buy trust. And, um, and again, that's why I'm going to your Citadel is because that is, that is something unique to your Citadel that I, 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 I see particularly valued with you versus anybody else doing something like this is having that trust-based community is a very important thing. Um, and sadly, that's part of what's making hard to fund is because people are trying to look at it in nominal terms of yielding profit rather than realizing that holding that uncompromising edge of the value of trust is what truly makes it valuable because you're funding building yourself a tribe when you come in. And so if you come in big and early to help us build this thing, you're going to have a tribe that's going to have your back to the absolute death, right? Like that's the real value, not like having 10% APR or something. And I think people just aren't awake to the fact like that, like Ben's gun wrote that really good article about being long volatility, not just long Bitcoin, that being long in your finances is no good. If you're short in other things like your food supply chains or your health, because you'll never get a chance to actually reap the wealth you make because if we let the whole world get destroyed because we don't stand up and defend and assert freedoms, especially which I think needs to be focused on in the U.S. because it's the best place to do it, Bitcoin's everything divided by 21 million. If, if it's zero divided by 21 million, then Bitcoin doesn't have anything at all to buy. So we, we need to actually defend the numerator, not just the denominator. Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, that you, you pretty much just, just said what I was thinking. I mean, this... Um... This idea that you can do, you, you can just do this on your own, it's just not the case. I mean, I, I, I thought about uh, this for a while as well, especially being in Mexico because everything is just <laughs> insanely cheap compared to the United States. It's a lot more doable to just kind of have your own citadel and, and you know, have your own resources. But, uh, okay, let's just paint a, a very simple scenario for everybody listening. Let's say we live in a world where, you know, the meat is getting monopolized and things are getting really expensive and everybody's working these jobs uh, constantly and pretty much people are just, you know, they're, it's getting more and more difficult to survive, basically. And we're going to reach a point where people are desperate. This has happened many other times in history. So now imagine this. You're the smart one, right? You're the, quote, smart one. And you prepared, you quote prepared for this, right? You have your food, you have uh, maybe even chickens or cows or whatever, right? Guess what happens when a bunch of people around you do not have that? You're screwed. You're absolutely screwed if you do not have people around you who uh, also have resources, who you trust uh, in very dire situations. And... Um, Generally speaking, human beings are inactive until it is either too late or very close to being too late. So, uh, yeah, that's my thought. I agree with all that, man. I mean, you look at even like the communist revolution in Cuba or the one that you always bring up that was over in Russia or wherever. Yeah, they always, yeah that one. I can't say that word. <laughs> um, they always seize farms. I mean, whether it's just people around you who are hungry and it's just like actual roving bands of people who are just kind of anarchy, right? Or it's governments because they pushed it too far and made dumb decisions and they needed to like steal the food to kind of keep the bread and circuses going. You can't do this on your own. You need, and this is like back to the idea of the local population in the U.S. 
you need these larger population centers of people that value freedom and private property rights to the extent that it's really, really expensive to try to disrupt them. Okay, um, you want to pass that to um, who you want to go to next, Michael? Let's go to Chase. He's been waiting for a while. Chase, what's up, man? What up, boys? This is uh, an amazing conversation you guys are having, and it's great to listen in. And this is actually a really good segue because my, my question for both you, you Joel, and, and you as well, Michael, is like, so, you know, I, I look around myself and, and I see a lot of friends and a lot of people I know that are aware of this global coup that's going on. And they're aware of this encroaching global communism, but a lot of them kind of have this like feeling of just hoping that it goes away. Like they kind of hope that it'll all sort itself out and everything will be okay. And, you know, the people in this room, we're all hyper aware of the fact that it's, it's not just going to go away. These people are playing for keeps. They want to take this thing to the, the finish line and we need to have a game plan for that. And I see so many people that are almost there, but they're not fully committed to sovereignty. And so what what it's leaving me wondering is like, what do you guys think is the best way to persuade these people to begin working towards logistical sovereignty? How, how do we get them from that place of apathy to that place of, okay, we actually have to start thinking about what we're gonna do about this and how we can build that sovereignty in the face of what's coming. Because like you guys said, like a lot of people are just gonna wait until the last second when it's too late. And then by then it's going to be too late and they're going to be coming to you for your resources. They're going to be coming to you for your farm animals, all that kind of stuff. How, how, how can we persuade people to actually take action for all the people that are on the fence? People can't have their minds changed. Their worldviews are what they are. We have two options. We can inspire them or they can suffer because they made a bad decision and now it's painful because they missed out. That's really the only two ways people learn. I mean, would you say anything other than that, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I've had very similar uh, issue, right? Like people, and I see that with family too, actually. You know, they think that it's it's just somehow going to go away. And that's, that's wishful thinking, which unfortunately humans are prone to doing. Um, the way I look at it is I, I just, I don't even care anymore. I mean, I, I, I should say I care. It's frustrating, but I, I just want to talk to the people that already get what's happening and want to act on it. I'm, I'm just, if I have to convince people at this point, it's just a waste of my time. That's the way I see it. Um, and maybe that's too pessimistic, but I, I just think there are already so many people who do see what's happening and are willing to do something. I would rather talk with those people and put my energy into those people. So yeah, density over volume. Build strong cohesion of showing how it can be done and use that to awaken hope. Go ahead, Decentralize MD. Sorry, sorry about that. Thanks, Joel. Yeah, no, and Chase, circle back real quick. Yeah, it's Chase. I think you guys did up nail on the head there. I think inspiring is definitely like the biggest component of that, particularly with my own family, whether it was proving that you could mine from home or proving that you could learn how to like homestead or things like that but anyway my biggest question though i think and kind of piggyback off chase a little bit i think we're at a point now you know where we do see people are aware but also a lot of people are scared and they really don't know what to do and i think the biggest thing and i've been telling and i was hoping you guys could weigh in on this is just consider your skills you know i can think about the guys that i'm currently speaking with in this group right now right and all of you guys have skills that you offer because i think that's the world andrew already said that earlier that's the world we are moving towards it's like 
Bitcoin's value is only held in what's in what's available, right? And I and I hundred percent agree. And I and people just really I don't think that's really resonating with people yet. I think it will in the coming year, absolutely. But your skill sets, what you can offer, and then also the biggest thing, and I can speak from this particularly because it's my biggest frustration in the medical community, specifically being a young attending in the academic medicine world, is like we often too much relationships and trust are established on optics and not actual solutions, not actual results. You know, I think we can see that definitely, whether it be the presidency, you know, you, would you rather have someone scold you as they actually give you $100 or stab you as they smile and tell you it's going to be okay, right? And that's what kind of how I like to describe what my experience is currently with the academic administration, specifically when we had this rapid shift in government. You know, people, I think the biggest thing, just to way back to a much earlier part of this conversation, you know, the Marxism, socialism culture is definitely in the media, but where I can feel a tangible president presence is in the medical world, specifically in the academic medical world. Um, however, my biggest thing, and, and Tap, this is for you, really, at this point now, we're seeing establishing relationships, trust, offering real solutions. I mean, that's what it's going to be to form these citadels. And I think we're already showing, like, early precursors to that, and it's a beautiful thing, but, like, Untap maybe, and Michael, you could weigh on this too, because you both sort of have that personality that people gravitate towards, but what were some of the biggest things you did to sort of cultivate the following you have now in terms of establishing trust? Was it just a one-by-one and where it got out, or did you have a sort of a plan when you started? Authenticity. It's not playing games. I mean, it's made me a lot of enemies in the space too, which doesn't, it keeps me from being put on big platforms, but it's why I have the support I do with every all you guys on the ground, because I always shoot straight with you guys. I tell you how I see it and I'm my real self and I'm humble about it and we're just doing it together. Right. I mean, I'm not trying to project a sense of strength where it's like, Hey, come join me because I'm the best. It's like, no, nah, it's just, if we don't pull together and if you guys don't help me, like this thing's fucked. Right. And the story is going to stay there because we have to be doing this together at scale. And it has to be people taking the risk of owning the level of exposure that takes and like a, a trust lens, but also in like a business and logistics lens to take the bets that if they start moving forward to building this, that there's enough people out there that are willing to build with them, that they'll show up. It's like shine your light and the rest of the brothers will find you that are willing to shine theirs with you. And being some of the first guys of that has been really painful. Um, I've had during this fundraise, a couple things I was really expecting to come through where words like word have been given to me and it's just gone now. And it's going to be close, man. I'm working my ass off trying to like get this thing all the way closed to where we need to be. And the window's closing in fast here on the end of February. And that's just what it looks like when you're kind of the guy going through the first through the gap as you're taking all the blows, man. And doing that from a leadership position, it's like being willing to be honest and let that suffering be vulnerable to where others see it is a part of how you lead. Cause that's where the inspiration's taking place because you are, you're allowing others to see what's possible and the courage it takes to do it so they can jump in and learn to do it with you too. That's what I'd say decentralizing. Do you have any thoughts there, Michael? Yeah. So <clears throat> I just want to piggyback on a lot of what you said and to say that I agree. Um, for me, it was also intentional to try to build this network out. I knew that it was going to be an important part of uh, building my personal sovereignty because yeah, we can be as independent as we can, but we're still going to have to rely on others. And when at those points where we rely on others, I would rather it be from a conscious decision, a conscious effort and a conscious relationship. So I really worked hard at building um, 
the network that I am that I currently have untapped. I, you know, I reached out to you and we had a conversation. Like I was willing to do what what was necessary to start connecting with those people that are like minded because it's going to become so important going <clears throat> into the future. And um, as far as like you know being authentic and using the I, I used to hide what I would say, especially like the, the vision, the way I saw things happening, the trajectory I saw the world on. I mean, I've been basically seeing this unfold for like 15 years. And, you know, normies, they, uh, they don't resonate with, 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 with that. So I, I used to have to self-censor. And then when I got on Twitter, I was like, look, if I'm going to find my people, this is where it's going to be. So let me just speak my mind and speak what I see happening. And those people that resonate with it, um, <clears throat> you know, they'll, 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 they'll find me and we'll connect. And those people that don't, it's just, we won't. And so that essay, um, Isaiah's job, um, really, really resonated with me, really like made me just push forward and just be able to speak my mind and find the people that, that, um, you know, align with, with what I see happening. And so, yeah. Uh, that's that's all I got to add to that. Beautiful. Yeah. One, one thing my sage used to always tell me was that truth is the best form of boundaries. So if like we want to build co- communities of strong and cohesive trust, we have to be truing up to something larger than ourselves. And it's not this. This is one of the first places where Marxism eroded everything is we started not believing in objective truth anymore and started making everything subjective. Being somebody who's a forerunner or a leader in a world where we are now, where we're trying to come together from a scattered, fractured place of chaos and start building together to protect freedoms and asserting like goodness in our country again, you, you have to be willing to like pursue truth with lots and lots of courage. Cause I've seen this really strongly in Michael. There's been times where I've seen Michael. It's like, he just couldn't figure out the answer to something, whether that was like his answer is like a, a man or a husband or like an answer for something he was trying to solve a problem and like fitness or solving like a macro thing he was trying to understand so he could be influential there. He's just relentless at finding a person who he thinks knows the answer and just doing what it takes to kind of build relationship and get in the door until he can get the answer from him. And it takes that mixed with a humility of being willing to suffer the friction with others kind of iron sharpens iron. Right. And in that place of honor, shake out what the truth is and then you both true up to it so the real strength here comes not because we're trying to create something that's subjective and i say okay we're all going to go agree to the subjective thing no 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 like what we're doing with this american ethos this bitcoin ethos of freedom is we're truing up to standards that are larger than us and then we all are centering on that rather than something we're making up trying to just assemble around subjectively that's where a lot of the power lies. And the more you're willing to pay the price of suffering to plow towards that with courage and plow towards that with humility when you miss the mark and suffer the friction and kind of get chiseled away so you look more and more like that truth, the better and better you're going to be breaking through as a forerunner and pulling people with you as you go. Anything to add there, Andrew or Michael? Or decentralized MD? Go ahead. I was going to yeah, say, you guys, are, you guys are doing God's work, man. Uh, Michael's what inspired me to finally start raising my voice and concerns in the medical world. And, uh, I just hope I can continue to, um, you know, learn from you guys. So thank you for all you do. We need more of that, man. We, we, we really need more of that. I appreciate that. God, I mean, I say this a lot, but God is truth. 
literally God is truth. And untapped mentioned that, you know, this is kind of a Marxist tendency is to get everybody to disagree on what the truth is. And what comes as a result of that is nobody has any idea what reality is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we just have to, to say uh, the truth and, and not have fear doing it because good things come as a result. So I appreciate that a lot, Decentralized MD. Respect. All right. You got any other people looking for asking questions or anything there, Michael? So I just brought up Boz Pipes here, or Pips. What's up? I don't see him up here yet. All right, well, I'll bring up some other people here. Okay, let's take a few more, and then I got to run. I got to run. I got to get back on the road. Trying to cover as many miles heading west today as I can. I kind of came in partway through the space, so I was wondering if you might be able to elaborate more on why you think the U.S. is the best country and why you see more downside for Mexico and, and South America. Because it seems to me that, I mean, there's parts of the U.S., certain states, we talked about Wyoming, Oklahoma as examples, but parts of the U.S. just seem so restrictive at this point that um, I think that other countries still remain to be good solutions. Hey, I just want to point out that <clears throat> this this is going to be recorded, and so if you if anyone here listening missed any of the conversation, uh, you can check it out on either a tweet with the space, or I'm going to have it up on my uh, podcast platform. Yep, that's what I was going to say too. Out of respect for everybody's time here listening, let's go to a question that was here, and then you could get just circled in by going back and listening to the recording. Does that sound good, Jay? Sure. All right, go ahead, Joe. Joe, you got a question or a comment? You're muted in case you I'm don't realize muted. that. I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? Yep. Yeah, yeah, we got you. Sorry about that. I, I just said thanks, guys, for, for your time. Um, over the last 40 minutes or so, you guys have completely turned my mind uh, a 180. What I mean by that is over the last year and a half or so, I have completely lost my patriotism. I've lost all my patriotic bones in my body. Up to the point that I actually last summer, I purchased a plot of land down in Belize. And in the next 12 to, to 36 months, I was gone. I was building it down there. And I kind of had the mindset of what you guys were saying earlier is, you know, this country sucks. I hate my government. I'm going to go somewhere where they're just going to leave me alone. And over the past, like I said, 40 minutes or hour or so, you guys have completely uh, quote unquote, got me back, if you will. And, and I'm, I'm like ready to put my land up for sale tomorrow and, and just figure out a way to, to make it work in, uh, in this country. I'm, I'm in New Jersey, which sucks. It's one of the more, you know, crazy States, unfortunately in this, in this, uh, dynamic that we're living in. Um, but talking, you know, hearing you guys talk about States like Tennessee and Oklahoma and, and Texas, um, it's, it's kind of just getting me excited to, know that I don't have to move to Central America or Europe or anywhere else. I can try and live here and get my freedoms back here. And there's so many more people out there that, that think like me that I didn't know about. And, and tonight just kind of proved that. So 
honestly, guys, I don't even have a question. I just want to say thank you so much. And uh, I, I will not be going to Belize. <laughs> so thanks Man. for your time. You guys are awesome. Yeah, Joe, I got a big smile on my face. That is great to hear. I was cause literally I was in the exact same position. I was like inches from buying, you know, getting land in Mexico as well. And so I totally that really resonates with me a lot. And uh, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. And you're from New Jersey. I'm from L.A. So similar, like both very fiat like places. So, yeah, just get the heck out of New Jersey. Go to a go to a better state. So I wish you the best, my friend. Yeah, that's find your people. Yep, that's the important part. I mean, we got to start thinking like logistical sovereignty, but you got to find your tribe, man. That's the most important thing. You can't solve all the problems on your own. Um, Michael, I got somebody DMing me. Um, Rajiv Ram, do you have them in your list of people that are there to ask questions? Okay, I just brought them up. Gotcha. Hey, yeah. Hi, Antap. Thanks. Uh, thanks for letting me have the stage. Um, I appreciate you responding to my uh, DMs. Um, I really love your spaces. Um, one thing I was going to say is I've been proselytizing about your cattle co-op project to a lot of people. Um, I wanted to make a couple comments and then really quick and then ask a general question. Um, one thing that really resonated with me, um, what you said earlier, is um, just about going um, the fact that a lot of tradesmen are retiring um, and there's not a lot of younger guys um, to replace them um, so i quit my big tech job and i moved to kind of uh the rural south and my experience has been exactly what we were talking about i even i was working in an electrician's job last week which a bunch of older guys from a church nearby um, and they were saying it's it's really disappointing um, how there's not a lot of young guys um, who are there to sort of pick up the wisdom. And these guys are these guys are wicked smart. I mean, they've been doing this stuff for 30, 40, 50 years. There's like a lot of general wis uh, generational wisdom about to be lost um, if if people don't sign up for that. And and what I would say to younger guys who are listening is it's not a matter of, you know, having perfect plans in place. It's actually just a matter of courage and being able to say, yeah, I'm leaving a bunch of salary and stock on the table, but this is more important and this is more in line with my integrity. And my experience has just been really wonderful um, coming here and I'm hopefully I'll, I'm interviewing for two trade apprentice jobs soon, but that's really what helps um, integrate you into the local community is, is knowing these experienced guys. And so it's a lot easier than you think. Um, you don't have to be perfect or have everything planned. You just need to know what your integrity is and have the courage to pursue that. Um, so one thing I'd like to add to that, yeah, go ahead. A lot of guys I know that are tradesmen make way more money than people realize, yeah, because there's a shortage of good tradesmen. Yep. They outpace a lot of the guys who are like college degrees, skill labor by an order of magnitude in some cases. Yep. So the salary thing is a bit skewed, like thinking about it through that lens. It's not that like trades don't make as much money, they just take actually working. <laughs> but and there's another value too in the trades that people don't realize is as the world gets more chaotic, there's a lot of people pushing around Excel sheets and just kind of crunching numbers on computers. And those jobs are pretty, pretty fungible one between the other, but yep. with the shortage of trades out there and then people needing jobs done everywhere, cause you always need this kind of stuff done. Those skills are really mobile and you can always produce value somewhere. So it makes you really resilient personally. 
So when you're thinking about building these mesh Dell networks, taking the time to learn these skills is really something that's actually pretty smart to be doing. I, would, I just wanted to add that in. Hey, can I, can I just piggyback off what you said and then we'll go back to Rajiv. But so I'm, I'm one of these people that recognized that the path I was on was not going to provide me the future that I wanted. And I listened to a speech by Doug Casey and he said, you know, what's going to be necessary in the future are actual skills, like real world skills, um, marketable skills, um, all this other stuff that's been created on top of the fiat layer, that's all going away. And so that shook me to my core. And within, like, once I heard that speech, I think within six months, I got a job working for utility industry, learning how to be um, basically a test engineer working on the power grid. And I went from making $60,000 a year to making, you know, $150,000 to $200,000 over, you know, let's just say two years after that. And that's, what, that's what, one of the biggest things I want to, like, hit home is that these skills are going to be so valuable in the future. You know, electrical skills, trade skills, all of that stuff are going to become so valuable. Because when I was working in the field, I was replacing guys who they had to bring back from retirement because there was no one there. So I could almost demand my hours and my pay because there was no one willing to do those, those, those uh, trade jobs. So just wanted to point that out. Yeah, totally. Um, everything you're seeing, both of you, is, is exactly matches my experience. And, and yeah, I didn't mean to make it seem like it's a purely economic calculus. It's really about investing in skills that are needed kind of timelessly um, so, so I, I just wanted to say that as a recommendation and, and kind of a confirmation of my experience. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up, and this is more in line with my, my question, is that um, I've, I often get frustrated because it kind of feels like a lot of people have an either or attitude in the sense of like, either, you know, you become a crypto Bitcoin expert or you become a home, homesteader sort of tradesperson. And it's like, no, both of those, both of those are important. Um, and, and oftentimes it's hard to run in networks of people that, that appreciate both. Um, and I think there's a lot of communication that needs to happen between, between those two worlds. Um, so like, for example, one thing that really resonated that you said untapped growth was um, like act local, but think global. And the fact is, is that we are in an information war. I mean, we are kind of in a digital war. I think you can see that clearly with Canada and other people, you know, uh, freezing bank accounts and even freezing Bitcoin's addresses. And you kind of have to have a military or war mindset, which is like, what are the tools at your disposal? Um, I'll, I'll give a quick example of, of something I'm kind of with is something that's pretty popular right now is a type of software called like a crypto uh, mixer or a crypto tumbler, which essentially lets you send your coins through shell addresses and, and shell shell wallets. Because otherwise in, in normal chains, it's it's pretty trivial for someone who has enough computational power to sort of analyze networks, especially if they're as scaled and determine like who are the hubs, where the majority of transactions are coming from and going to, you know, who holds the most, who's funding what, and then to find those identities, find their locations and ultimately dox them. And so in terms of thinking global, people start have to thinking about like, hey, what are the strategies that I can use to help protect my wet network and my sort of digital wealth? 
And one of those is like crypto Tumblr. And that's not in opposition to investing in, in local networks, you know, and, and knowing the people around you, maybe, you know, buying a cow and that other thing. I mean, I think yep. people have to yeah, keep both like, of those in we, mind. Hold on, we I need, just, we need yeah, everybody to bring their skills to bear. And every, those skills could be electrical, they could be carpentry, they could be farming, they could be project management, they could be administration, they could be homeschooling, they could be doctors, they could be like lactation consultants or like doulas for home pregnancies or whatever, right? Like everybody just needs to build tribes and find the holes that their tribe needs most for them to be well, for them to have control of their resources, have control of their inputs and be able to assert freedoms because they're not dependent upon anything external. Um, Andrew, you got anything to add? I'm pretty much out of time here, so I need to get going. Yeah, I'm out of time too. Uh, I think it's, I haven't eaten all day. I'm going to go eat some tacos now, so. Um, you and me both. I just chugged a half gallon of raw milk that I picked oh, up yeah, off the raw milk. Raw milk the is the way. way. Yeah, pasteurized <laughs> milk is a scam for anyone listening. It is a hundred percent verified scam. Um, yeah, man. Um, <clears throat> I appreciate you a lot on tap. Like you're your brother, man. Uh, same with you, Michael. And it's really cool that we can just use this technology to exchange uh, ideas and you know navigate ourselves in this crazy life we're all living so take advantage of it while we can right yeah yep <laughs> right right all right I'll, I'll plug myself while i'm here um yeah I, I really appreciate it too andrew i'm looking forward to you getting up here man i definitely could use you on the team as far as living out the citadel as a member of the community and kind of helping volunteer help me get stuff done man i'm looking forward to having another good man around in addition to all the other guys in the tribe yeah um Guys, we've got a really strong team assembling here in Oklahoma, and I've got a lot of good people that are hooked, that are building relationships with the community, talking to their families, trying to figure out if they want to come be a part of the tribe, too. The one thing I'm short on is funding, and i got 10 days to finish it. So uh, if any of you guys got, like, whales you're connected to or wealthy people who believe in the way that we need to be asserting freedom in America and doing it not for the money, but for the fact that, like, somebody just needs to be doing this, of pulling together these places to be a showing point and an example in a networking node to help others be doing it too. And that that's the value prop is your tribe will protect you. Um, point of my way, man, we got a little bit of time and I got a long ways to go here because I've had a few things go wrong here at the end, but um, team teams on it and we're on it trying to push it as hard as we can. The guys are in it, but uh, yeah, it's getting pretty close. I'm going to have to bootstrap like crazy and bring all my entrepreneurial skills to bear if we don't get a little more help. But, um, yeah, thanks for your time, guys. Glad you're all here and hanging out. All right. Thank you, everybody, for, for joining. I'm going to close this space down. And uh, Untapped, Andrew, thank you very much. And, yeah, we'll do it again. Awesome, guys. Peace. Good as always, man. See you guys.